I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm incredibly excited today to get to talk to two good friends of mine, both professors at the Institute of New Economics at Oxford University, my uh, writing partner, Eric Beinhocker, and his colleague, Doan Farmer, who's a mathematician and an economist. And in particular, we're going to talk to them about the economics of climate change and the way that technology is upending you know, our orthodox understanding of, of that. Both are brilliant and amazing and doing some really, really interesting cutting-edge research in this field. And I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from them. This is at the bleeding edge of some of the best thinking about climate change and uh, the future. So enjoy. I'm Eric Beinhocker. I'm a professor at the Mavotnik School of Government at the University of Oxford and the executive director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, also at Oxford. I'm Dylan Farmer. I'm the Bailey Gifford Professor of Mathematics, and I'm also the Director of Complexity Economics at the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the Oxford Martin School. Eric and Doan, uh, so great to have you on. And you guys have been doing some fascinating thinking, collaborating on the economics of climate change and the ways in which the reality of that are so different from the conventional thinking. And so you know, for our listeners, I think it'd be fantastic to sort of set the stage by describing the conventional thinking, the sort of orthodox neoliberal or neoclassical thinking, probably best anchored by uh, William Nordhaus. Many uh, listeners will uh, be aware that the COP26 uh, climate summit in Glasgow just uh, finished up the other week and uh, may have been very disappointed with the progress uh, or lack of progress at that conference. And we believe that part of the reason why progress has been so slow is that we've had the wrong economic ideas about uh, this problem, uh, about how climate change is, is framed. Uh, as you uh, alluded to, Nick, we've been thinking about this problem uh, since the 1970s and some uh, pioneering work by Yale economist uh, William Nordhaus, uh, for which he, he won the Nobel Prize, that says that basically climate change is a giant cost-benefit problem, uh, that it's going to be very expensive and costly to transition uh, from our fossil fuel economy to a clean energy economy, but that has to be, those costs have to be weighed against the benefits of avoiding uh, an ecological collapse and potential mass extinction event. And so the whole idea is we need to you know, add up those costs, look at those uh, you know, future benefits of avoided disaster and kind of chart a path between the two. Now, the answer that comes out of that way of thinking and modeling the problem is basically go slow, delay and, and, and wait as long as you can, uh, stretch the costs out as long as you can, and uh, uh, try to get more uh, information about what's going to happen in the future. But that go slow approach, as we've seen in the COP26 uh, in Glasgow, uh, has put us in a position where we're now already very close to the uh, uh, tipping point in terms of uh, dangers to our system. Maybe just to ch chime in one thing, Eric, is that uh, Nordhaus is, has had various, he puts a number on the sort of target temperature rising that strikes the right balance between the costs and the benefits. And his early number was quite high. The new number is around 3.1 degrees centigrade. 
So that's, you know, five and a half degrees Fahrenheit or so. So that's a lot of warming. So how do you price civilizational collapse? Like how, how does that, how do you, well, I, I'm, be, I'm being both glib and honest in the question. Like, how do you, how do you calculate that? Well, and, 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 you know, that shows that uh, the huge disconnect between the way economists have been thinking about the problem and the way physical scientists have been thinking about it. So, you know, as Don just noted, uh, you know, Nordhaus's optimal warming is, is well above three degrees that the vast majority of climate scientists agree that would be just a complete uh, catastrophe you know, with irreversible uh, changes to the climate system and, and you know, major threats to ecologies and even to human civilization. And you know, there is no way to, uh, to put a price on that is, is, uh, is the short answer. Let me say, though, that even, even among uh, mainstream economists, Nordhaus has been criticized quite a bit for underestimating the damage function. I mean, because really, the, the temperature you're going to get at the end depends on how costly you think it'll be to make the transition and how severe the damage will be as a function of the temperature that we land on. And so I think, I think most people think that Nordhaus significantly, dramatically underestimated how much destruction would happen as the temperature goes up. And um, so, of course, that has to take into account all the stuff that's going to happen. And right. I don't think he did that properly. Right. But in addition to getting the fundamental economics probably wrong, I mean, I, I guess what I find you guys arguing in your various pieces, and you've got this fantastic new piece out in, in the Democracy Journal, and you've had a piece out in Bloomberg and Washington Post. I mean, you're arguing that he, he even got the fundamental economics upside down, that in fact, it's cheaper, not to say better. Yeah, we're arguing that he got the sign of the effect wrong, as we would say in, in physics. You know, he got the opposite sign to the one that we think is correct. We think that converting to renewables and doing so reasonably quickly within a span of about 20 years is going to save the world money. It's going to make energy cheaper for us, as well as abating climate change. Tell us more about that. Tell us why it's going to be cheaper and how the, the last decades have, you know, demonstrated that. Yeah, so this goes back to some work that uh, my group has done here at Oxford and Chris McGee and collaborators have done at MIT where we, we just collected data on technologies. You would think that we would know the history of technologies and their performance quite well, but actually that data is quite hard to come by. Mm -hmm. and is sort of scattered all over the place. So we collected some, they collected some. And so we plot over the course of time, um, what did it cost to perform a given function? So energy is a nice uh, technology because the function is pretty clear. You know, you, how, many, how many dollars does it cost to uh, make a kilowatt of useful energy? And so you can look at how that's changed through time. And... The answer is that technologies are very persistent. That's the first thing you see. That is their, their rates of improvement are very persistent. The technology is improving at 10% per year in one decade. It's likely to improve you know, between five and 15% in the next decade and, and on and on and on. And so the persistence is really measured in decades and often goes quite steadily for as long as a century. So what you see is that 
many technologies, most technologies actually improve quite slowly. So, you know, they, they might improve a little bit over the course of a century, but not dramatically. But some technologies, the one we're all quite familiar with, the computers and Moore's Law, can improve extremely quickly. Computers have been improving at something like 40% per year. Depends on exactly how you measure it. And interestingly, it's not just Moore's Law in that case. It's also things like hard disks have improved at 40 or 50% per year. So computers are one of the outliers. Another technology that's been improving at a fairly steady rate is solar energy. Uh, that is photovoltaic solar energy, solar cells. And since their advent in 1958, where solar cells were first used for the um, Vanguard satellite, they've been improving at roughly that rate ever since. Meanwhile, other energy technologies like fossil fuels have hardly changed over the course of 140 years. That is, prices go up and down, so they're volatile, but the overall long-range trend is pretty flat. And similarly, nuclear power, since its advent, actually almost exactly at the same time as solar energy, nuclear power has only gone up in price, although you know it's slightly complicated. In Korea, it's gone down at but at an extremely slow rate, maybe 1% per year, which uh, is quite slow. And so, you know, there's very low likelihood that nuclear power will go down in the future. But the, the main point being that because we see these persistent trends, uh, it's a pretty good bet that they'll keep going. Now, one thing that they depend on is deployment. This is somewhat controversial, but the more we make of something, the better we understand how to make it and the cheaper it gets. And the relationship that governs that is something called Wright's Law by Theodore Wright, who quite an interesting figure, was you know, head of U US aviation production during at least for part of World War II. But before that in 1936, he observed that if you take a given type of plane in a given factory that the cost of the plane to produce the plane goes down by 20% every time cumulative production of that plane doubles. So that law turns out to hold for many other technologies as well, although with varying percentages, and it holds quite well for solar energy. And so our prediction is that if we continue on the rapid rate of deployment we have for solar energy, it's been going up for 40% per year for many decades now, then if we continue on that rate of deployment, that within 10 years, solar energy, wind, another technology that's been increasing in deployment at an exponential rate and going down at a similar rate as a function of deployment, wind, batteries, similar track record, and hydrogen-based fuels like ammonia, uh, that those four technologies are the key technologies that are gonna be players in the green energy transition. And if they continue to behave as they have in the past, and if we can just keep them on their same deployment rates for another 10 to 20 years, actually for 10 years for the, for the first two, because that's uh, all it takes for them to become dominant, then we're gonna see energy cheaper than it's ever been. Just to clarify a couple of things. So despite the fact that coal and oil have been around for, well, 100 years, right? Maybe longer. 
longer. Hundred, well, yeah. I mean, for a long time, for many, 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 yeah. many, de many decades, they effectively cost the same amount per kilowatt hour today as they did fifty years ago or hundred years ago. Yes. Once you account for inflation, then you know the price of oil is about what it was hundred years ago. Similarly with coal, and of course it fluctuates by factors of two or three. There are periods where yeah. oil goes up, and there's periods where it goes down. But the long-range trend is, is pretty flat. We we should note that you know this is uh, not to say there hasn't been technology improvements in those areas. Right. Um, you know there there uh, has been a lot of technology advance in oil, gas, coal mining, etc. But but we uh, or the you know data seems to indicate that uh, those advances have gone more into developing new sources of supply. Right. You know, going from easy onshore oil to uh, right. you know, tight oil, offshore, you know, Siberian oil, so on, uh, rather than uh, delivering sustained cost declines, whereas the technology advances in wind, uh, solar batteries have resulted in, um, uh, you know, more efficiencies and, and uh, you know, uh, cost declines have been passed on to consumers. It, and it is true that today, utility scale solar is as cheaper, cheaper than all of the fossil fuel alternatives, isn't it? Well, it depends a bit on your geographic location. Okay. But it's it's certainly in sunny places now, it's 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 cheaper. And you know, as the costs continue to come down, our our, our rule of thumb is if you that the locations that are in the 95th percentile of solar, meaning it's most expensive, they're gonna be in after a decade, they should be roughly where the fifth percentile places are now. It depends on where you live, what's yeah. more expensive. But in another decade, it's gonna be pretty uniformly cheaper. You know, we, we should be clear that we're approaching this tipping point where uh, renewables plus storage from, you know, from batteries and from liquid fuels, you know, becomes uh, cheaper uh, and better than the fossil fuel economy. And we're kind of approaching that tipping point now. We still have a long way to go. Only about 20% of global energy is from uh, non-fossil fuels today, 80% from fossil fuels. But the growth uh, has been extraordinary. Renewable capacity uh, was up 45% in, in 2020. Uh, you know, the only energy sources actually grow during the pandemic. And 90% you know, of, of new power additions in the world now in the electrical sector are from renewables. So this is all good news, but it's not ha it's still not happening fast enough to get us on the pathway to, to net zero and, and contain warming uh, according to the Paris targets. Yeah. And there are you know many barriers to getting this stuff out faster. Uh, we need more investment flows. We need policy support. There's issues with you know developing the grids and, and ensuring there's enough storage capacity and, and so on. So it you know uh, there's a, a huge amount of good news in these cost declines that uh, that Doan was talking about, but uh, you know but it's a race against the clock. Eric, could could I uh, I'd like to interject a little bit of a yeah. correction, in that actually if we can just stay on the improvement rates that we've been on for solar and wind, we're going to get there in a decade, and we are going to hit the Paris Agreement. The question is, can we do that? Are the forces, are there gonna be blockages that will keep us from, from doing that, like resistance from fossil fuel companies? I think the key place where we have to really put our pedal to the floor is in storage technologies, long-term storage. So 
the, the, the weakest track record of the four technologies that I mentioned, that is solar, wind, batteries, and uh, hydrogen-based fuels are the hydrogen-based fuels. So we need to get those costs down and we need to keep them on the 60% per year deployment rate that they're on. And they need to stay on that for another 15 years or so to get us where we need to go. So if we can just do that, we're there. And this is where policy and politics starts to make a big difference, doesn't it? Because if we were not in a race for time, then we would have nothing to worry about, right? Because, yeah. the, because the fundamental dynamics of these technological improvements are going to put the oil companies out of business eventually, full stop. Can't Effectively yeah. can't not happen, right? But right. the truth is we are in a race for time, that we have to get there quick. And that's where policy and politics comes in. And, and I'd love for you guys to discuss this, uh, this new strategy for climate, which is making the clean stuff cheap. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Um, it is a race against time. And you know, again, despite the, you know, the good news trends in terms of costs and deployment that, that Doan was talking about, you know, there's a huge amount of momentum uh, and existing installed capacity and political power in the, in the existing fossil fuel system. You know, so this tipping point you know, won't happen fast enough without a uh, significant push from policy. And, and we should also note you know, some of the barriers are you know, uh, things that uh, like issues with how the grid is run and operated that are you know, fall squarely in the purview of uh, governments or common infrastructure like charging points for electric vehicles and, and, and things like that. We need to convert pipelines from oil to ammonia. We need, as Eric said, we need to, to have a build out. We estimate the grid needs to build out, be built out by like a factor of four over the next 30 years. So we need to really dramatically expand the grid and it's all doable, but it is gonna require policy and you know coordinated government action to make those things happen. Can I ask a clarifying question? Uh, and I feel stupid asking it, but I'm, I suspect that some of our listeners will also have it, which is, what do you mean by ammonia? This is something new to me. Yeah. So, um, you know, ammonia is the stuff that, uh, you, you know, people use to clean things, but it also burns. And it's a fuel that um, without carbon is, you know, a fuel that you can easily make from electricity and water. And unlike hydrogen, which is an extremely light and very volatile gas, so it's hard to handle uh, and tough to store. You know, if you just put hydrogen out in the air, it, it just evaporates and goes off into outer space. It's so light, yeah. gravity doesn't hold it down. But ammonia is, you know, it's a liquid uh, kind of like petroleum. Ammonia, ammonia is a convenient fuel and ammonia is not the only possibility. I mean, you can make several other fuels that are hydrogen based that can be made in a, in a carbon neutral way. While solar and wind are great at, at generating electricity, you know, there's many applications that, that need liquid fuels that also need heating. And also you need to be able to store uh, the electricity generated by wind and solar because the sun and wind don't blow all the time. So uh, we'll need a, a combination of, of storage uh, technologies, you know, including utility scale batteries, but also these, yeah. um, these liquid fuel capabilities. So with electricity and water, you can make ammonia, correct? Yeah. And with ammonia, you could run a car? Yeah. Yeah. For vehicles, 
you know, it's looking for most like passenger vehicles, you know, it's so looking those, most likely electric. That, that, yeah. that, that electric cars with battery technologies, yeah. you know, work very well. But, yeah. you know, certain kinds of large scale heavy machinery, factory operations, industrial processes, you know, uh, lots of other uh, tankers and, and yeah, uh, ships. Uh, and we're going to need, you know, li- you know, renewable liquid fuels for aircraft and, and things like that. So, um, okay. you know, elect- electricity and batteries can get a, a big chunk of the problem, but not all the problem. OK, so let's talk about making the clean stuff cheaper rather than the bad stuff more expensive. Yeah. So for about the past 30 years, again, you know, initiated by, uh, you know, Nordhaus's work, you know, the strategy that economists focused on was, well, climate change is what economists call an externality, a form of pollution where somebody is uh, creating a cost that they aren't bearing, but society as a whole is bearing. And the textbook economics answer to that is to put a price on it, you know, to uh, to tax it, uh, create a pollution tax or a market where you can trade uh, permits to pollute. And that approach was tried in other areas uh, of uh, environmentalism, most famously for reducing acid rain, sulfur dioxide emissions in the U.S., and it was actually very successful. So many economists thought this was the, you know, the logical uh, approach for climate change, that we should have a carbon tax uh, or what's called a cap and trade market, where you have permits to emit carbon that uh, are then reduced over time and, and you trade them, uh, creating a price for it. And it's a, you know, it's a very elegant answer in theory, but it hasn't really worked in progress in, 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 uh, in reality. You know, we've been trying to implement carbon prices around the world for the last 30 years. And the World Bank estimates that today, you know, after all this effort, only about 0.8% of global emissions are under any kind of effective carbon tax. And this is despite the fact that actually a growing number of countries have uh, carbon prices, about 60 countries in the world do today. But the big problem with them is political, that uh, when carbon taxes or carbon prices are proposed or implemented, um, there's huge pushback from fossil fuel and industrial interests, as as we put it, the the you know the dirty stuff doesn't want to be made more expensive, so it fights back, and those interests have a lot of political power. So in well, you know, and, uh, and and if I and if I could just yeah. say, and consumers, uh, uh, yeah, and and consumers, yeah. and the majority uh, you know, of consumers hate it too. Yeah. And, and, you know, politically, it's a very powerful argument. You tell people, yeah. oh, your energy bill is going to go up or you're going to pay more for gas for your car. And, you know, listeners may you know, be familiar with uh, what were called the Gilets Jaunes uh, protests in France. Uh, it's people all wearing yellow vests who came out in the streets in, in their tens of thousands because they were going to increase uh, gas taxes uh, to pay for uh, climate right. initiatives. So that makes it, you know, uh, very, very hard uh, politically to implement these uh, schemes. And then even if they do, like Europe has had its emissions trading scheme uh, for uh, over a decade now, um, what tends to happen is the lobbyists get a hold of it and they just ensure the carbon price is so low that it has almost no uh, effect. So, you know, the European uh, trading scheme, for example, only studies estimate reduced emissions by about 3%, uh, again, despite all this uh, effort and political capital invested. Yeah, it's definitely a long slog to do that. It's a, and politically, it couldn't be a harder thing to accomplish. Exactly. Now, you know, if if someone, you know, we're going to implement a seventy-five dollar a ton carbon tax in the U.S. tomorrow, you know, we'd be the first people to uh, to cheer. 
but uh, yeah. again, the politics make that it is not going to happen. And interestingly, uh, some listeners may have heard uh, that an Exxon lobbyist was caught on secret videotape by an environmental group confessing to the fact that the fossil fuel companies actually support proposals for carbon taxes because they know how politically toxic uh, they are. Right. Um, so it's a very cynical, uh, very cynical strategy. So instead, we propose a, a pivot to a strategy we call make the clean stuff cheap and widely available and use policies that can uh, drive the deployment of more renewable technologies to accelerate uh, the cost declines that we talked about, and also to make the investments in infrastructure uh, that are required to make a, a high renewable system work, and also to remove the other barriers that stand in the way for deploying these uh, these clean technologies. Right. And so just you know, playing this back to you in sort of political talk, it's just way easier to give people a new cheaper thing uh, than it is to make the existing thing that they are using more expensive. You know, like it's just one is a relatively easy political sell and the other is a nightmare. You know, and I've watched the environment, you know, the sort of the climate change political community hit their heads against this brick wall again and again and again and again and fail uh, because they're expecting the majority of citizens, most of whom are hanging on economically by their fingernails to subordinate their own near-term economic self-interest uh, to save the polar bears, right? Uh, which people will not do. They just will not do it. Exactly. You know, um, well, you know, polls show that people increasingly do care a lot about climate change in the environment. The latest Yale study shows something like 70% in the, in the U.S. Right. do. But when it comes down to the kitchen table issues, telling someone, you know, their commute to work is going to get more expensive, they don't like that. Yeah. But That's if, right. if instead, you know, uh, is, is anyone who's driven one of these, you know, wonderful modern electric cars knows they are better cars. They're just great they cars. And, you know, if you tell people instead, we're going to give you cheaper, better electric cars and we're going to give you plenty of places around where you can easily charge them and so on. Yeah. Uh, and you'll you'll never have to you know spend money on on gasoline again. You'll never have to get an oil change. Your maintenance costs will be lower. You know, and, and these things go really fast. You know, people will like that. Or likewise, you know, if we can get these very high levels of deployment of renewables and drive the cost down, you know, people will see their electric uh, utility bills uh, drop. Yeah. Um, you know, which is a, a good thing. And, and people have already, you know, started to see some of these benefits. You know, LED lighting, for example, has, has become, you know, very cheap now. And it's just better lighting. You know, who likes to change light bulbs all the time? Plus, you can make them different colors and things like that. So, you know, it's better for consumers. And it also creates new economic and political interests because the companies making the electric vehicles, making right. the solar turbines, making, you know, the LED lights, their voice starts to get heard in, in the political system. That's right. And their money can start to be deployed politically, too, against the fossil fuel industries. Yeah. You know, um, you know, stepping back a bit, you know, the way we think about this whole problem, again, you know, very different from you know, where we started with uh, the conventional economics in Nordhaus is it's not a big cost benefit problem. It's a problem of economic transformation. 
So the transition to the clean energy economy is more like the industrial revolution. You know, you're changing the technologies, changing the energy systems, changing the, you know, the way we live. And, you know, we know from history that um, we do have these regime changes. You know, there's not a lot of companies making whale oil uh, anymore, yeah. you know, or bucky whips. And, um, you know, if these new technologies do get cheaper and better and widely deployed, you know, our future generations will be reading about oil companies in their history books. They won't exist anymore. And um, but uh, again, uh, we have to drive this this industrial technological transformation faster than it would happen just on its own. I don't know how much the best utility grade solar costs per kilowatt today, but in 10 years at the current course and speed, how much cheaper will it be than it is today? Well, just to, you know, as a you know, as a as a reference point, you know, in in a, about fifteen years between uh, two thousand and five and two thousand twenty, solar dropped twenty two fold. Incredible. And what does that imply twenty years out? I mean, it will be ninety percent cheaper than it is today. Uh, twenty years out. Yeah. Well, the, the curve is going to is likely to flatten. This is okay. debated, but the the reason the curve would flatten is that in in about ten years, solar becomes a dominant technology. So right yeah. now, it can it can increase at forty percent per year because it's knocking other technologies, it's taking over their their territory, right. and it's still a relatively small fraction of the total. But in ten years, it starts to become a substantial fraction, like fifty percent of the total. And then it has to flatten out. And the rate of growth of energy in general, total energy, useful energy, is around 2% per year. So the growth will eventually flatten to around 2% per year. And when that happens, we will likely move down the learning curve more slowly than we are now. And so it won't drop in price as fast as it has been dropping. Although we'll see. Yeah, I mean, but we are looking at, uh, I mean, if we don't annihilate ourselves in between here and there, a future with an astonishing amount of abundant, clean energy. Yeah, and- and To, and to cheap, do a lot of know, really we, cool things with. Yeah, no, you know, we, we uh, our, our team estimates that, you know, if we go through what we call a decisive transition, you know, where we have a, a big push to accelerate uh, the deployment that Doan was talking about, that that could save the world about 27 trillion in energy costs versus the uh, costs of the fossil fuel economy that we have today. So we would have both abundant and cheaper energy. Now, you know, one thing that many many listeners may wonder about is, as you know, we talk about getting to higher and higher levels of renewables. This is, you know, again, everyone knows that sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't blow. You know how reliable would that kind of an electricity system be? Would we still need nuclear or some fossil fuel on the grid? And yeah, this is a, a an area of of debate. But uh, around the world, different utilities are getting more experience with higher and higher levels of renewables, and we're finding that as um, the engineers get working on these issues, that you know combinations of of storage and uh, renewables, and um, you know and and um, other sources of power, hydro and uh, geothermal and so on, uh, can combine to create you know, very reliable grids that can get to uh, zero carbon. 
And you know, nuclear, you know, our, our view is where it exists today, it should be run as long as it's safe and, and economical to do so. But as Doan noted uh, earlier, the costs of nuclear have been increasing over time, yeah. whereas the uh, and are now substantially more expensive than renewables. So in terms of adding uh, new nuclear capacity, unless there's some you know, real major technological breakthrough that, that changes that equation, it, uh, it doesn't make sense to be adding you know, large amounts of, of, of new nuclear capacity. Yeah, cool. So we always ask this question at the end of our podcast, if you guys were benevolent dictators and could just decide what the world should do to address these problems, uh, what would you do? If I was a benevolent uh, dictator, the policy I'd like to see implemented globally is uh, what I call carbon abolition, uh, a sunset clause uh, for fossil fuels that by a fixed date, you know, say uh, 2035 in the developed world and, and 2050 in the, in the developing world, that we're just not going to allow the burning of fossil fuels in a way that, that has emissions. Fossil fuels that have some carbon capture and storage would still be allowed, but nothing uh, that would be uh, emitting. And having that as a, as a fixed uh, date and uh, fixed in law would be a huge signal to the rest of the economy. You've got to get your skates on and start this transition now. And it would be a huge spur to drive the deployments of clean energy technologies and, and innovation that we've been talking about. And it would give huge certainty to the capital markets that that's where you want your money to go. How about you, Don? Well, I, I would agree with that. I would do the same thing. I think the only thing I would add is I would also provide substantial support for uh, methods of storing energy. These they're called actually P2X fuels like ammonia that you can make from hydrogen to try and get the cost of that down as quickly as possible. The put in place the infrastructure for storing it, for moving it around the planet uh, where it's needed and moving energy around as well as building really good grid technology so that we can move energy around the planet in that form. So I, I put both the carrot and the stick. <laughs> Eric, said yeah. Eric gave the stick. I'd also put out some carrots. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And finally, uh, Don, you go first, and then you, Eric. Why do you do this work? <laughs> I do it. I do it because, you know, I love it. But I want to do something good for the world. And I, uh, you know, actually, like 15 years ago, um, when I was at the Santa Fe Institute, we had some people come up from the NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, and to help them think out of the box about what to do. And I, I could see that the main thing that all this depended on was how the cost of technologies are going to change in time. And so I you know, I've been doggedly researching that question since then. And um, it's very nice to see that paying off in terms of an understanding of technological change that'll benefit not just the green energy transition, but lots of other areas as well. And of course, it's always nice when you can predict things. Yeah, it's fantastic. How about you, Eric? Um, for me, it's pretty simple. I'd like uh, future generations to be able to flourish on and enjoy this beautiful blue planet that uh, uh, we're the stewards of. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So Eric and Dylan, thank you so much for being with us. This is so fantastic. And uh, thank you for your work. Uh, it's both important and fascinating. 
Uh, thanks so much, Nick. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for me uh, and appreciate you getting the word out there. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.